Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brian. Today's guest is a very special guest, in my opinion, uh, General Jim Huggins, United States Army, retired. General Huggins retired after serving for 35 years in the United States Army. He pulled seven combat tours of duty and served as Chief Operating Officer of the United States Army. In that position, he served as the principal advisor to the Secretary of the Army on Joint Service, National Security Council, and the politico-military aspects of international affairs. He directed the resourcing, restructuring, and budget execution for 1.1 million soldiers, 330,000 civilians, and a $170 billion budget. From 2010 to 2012, he served as a commanding general of the 82nd Airborne Division and NATO Regional Command South, Kandahar, Afghanistan. After all of that time of service, he still wanted to give more, and he joined his friend, General Stanley McChrystal, at the McChrystal Group, where he sees it as a perfect fit for the work they do and the variety of clients in various industries that are faced with complex leadership challenges in a rapidly changing environment. General Huggins uh, shares a lot of great wisdom with us in this interview. Uh, I really hope that uh, you take as much out of it as I did because I got a lot out of this and you can really see uh, the general's leadership philosophy and experience shine through and hopefully uh, it unveils some of those more interpersonal skills of leadership that I've been talking about here that are way more critical to military leadership than most people want to give credit for. With that, I'm going to shut my mouth and I'm going to get out of your way and let you get into this outstanding interview with General Jim Huggins. All right, well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. We have an outstanding guest with us today, General Jim Huggins. General, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Earl. Well, yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, my, my listeners heard, hopefully we're paying attention with the bio, uh, but you are currently with uh, the, the McChrystal Group, and uh, you have a vast wealth of knowledge in, in leading uh, leading soldiers into battle. So I'm very interested 
to hear your take on the question I start all my guests out with. What does the phrase burden of command mean to you? Well, you know, the definition is pretty, pretty clear in terms of what a lot of books have written about it. But for me, it is, um, it is placing the mission above all else. Um, and that becomes a challenge because we care so much so deeply about our soldiers, um, our paratroopers. Um, but we know the nation is depending on us and there is a, a, a greater calling. Mm-hmm. No, and I'm glad you led with that, that care word. Cause that's when I talk about a lot on my podcast that, that especially with civilian leaders, uh, they don't really equate caring and military leadership hand in hand for some reason. And, and, and that's a, an integral part of it, right? Well, I absolutely, in my opinion, Earl, um, you know, how you deeply care um, is reflective of how you lead. Um, and, I, and I mean that, you know, as a very young lieutenant, um, when you're doing a duty of, you know, having to as a having to make sure we get the food for the troops out in the field. Um, so you just go pick up the mermites and the food and you bring it back out and Nobody, if you don't care enough, do you check to make sure you got the right quantities or that you just didn't bring out um, turkey and gravy and left all the collards and everything else back there? Or you didn't bring utensils and everybody's got to eat out of their canteen cup. Um, You know, know, as a leader, it's all about caring from that moment all the way to I can remember standing there in a C-130 getting ready to jump out of a plane and looking over at the 18 year old next to me. You know, we're wearing the same chute. We're going to jump out of the same plane. And um, and he's yawning. And you're asking yourself, well, why why, why is he yawning? He can't be tired. We're all scared to death. But, you know, us realizing that actually that, that yawning is the body's, you know, reaction to try and grasp more air when you're scared. And you see that. And, um, you know, you reach over. And the best thing you can do is touch somebody at that point in time and, and offer them reassurance and say, hey, we're all going to be all right. You know, just follow me. That that's exactly it. You know, it's, it's, uh, well, first of all, let me touch on the jumping piece there because, uh, you know, as we talked about in, in kind of the pre-show workup and, uh, uh, during the whole, uh, scheduling process, my, uh, my grandfather was World War II veteran, uh, United States army, uh, paratrooper jumped uh, in the first infantry, uh, jumped into Normandy and, uh, as he put it, marched all over Europe, but, he loved to jump out of planes and he did it the rest of his life until he, and when I say shattered, he literally shattered his ankle to jump in Spartanburg, uh, uh, North Carolina there or Spartanburg, South Carolina there. And, uh, but I never got it. So, so what is it that drives somebody to, to want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane as, as us who aren't geared towards it would, would, uh, define it. Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, as always, it's never as simple as, boy, the plane's going 120 knots and, uh, I get to leap out at 800 feet and hope my parachute opens. And, um, that thrill, you know, that adrenaline is really not it for, I think, for, I think I can speak safely for, for a lot of the soldiers I was lucky enough to work with and serve with. Um, but it, it, it is, it is, I mean, 
first off, the, the, the nation asks a soldier to be willing to sacrifice his own life um, for the for for the cause. Um, you know, a paratrooper uh, has to practice jumping, and you know, so we are going to routinely take the ultimate risk um, as we even get ready for war. And I'm trying to get to your answer, Earl. And it, it, what it really comes down to is it's it's not so much the jumping, but it's for me it's about hanging around with the people who have that edge who are willing to jump because mm. um, they'll take that extra step. Um, in the middle of the night, at, in the darkness, across some foreign country, and be willing to jump out um, for something that's bigger than than you know where they grew up, either in Tennessee or Georgia, like myself. Right. No, and I love it. And you know, that was the thing. Like you know, uh, my grandfather didn't share a whole lot of stories of his experience, but uh, you know, he shared a few things and. One of the things I remember asking him about, you know, because we were sitting there, we were watching, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember what movie it was, but we were watching a movie and they were focused on, on paratroopers. And I remember seeing the old round silk parachutes and it struck me, there were no real handles on those things. Like, oh no, you grab a handful of paracord and you collapse a side and that's how you try to steer and you aim for the softest, uh, softest building side you could find. And, uh, I said, you're like, why, <laughs> you know, and, and he said pretty much the same thing you just did. It was because, especially at that time, it was what the, the nation asked uh, us to do. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always held a lot of respect for, uh, for the army, you know, as a Marine myself, it always pains me to say that I have a lot of respect for the army, but I do, uh, y'all, y'all do a lot of great stuff and jumping out of planes is, is just one element of that. But, uh, uh, you know, thank you very much for being there and doing it and, and for your service to the nation. I really appreciate it, sir. No, my, it's my pleasure. I really, I, I, you know, my, I am fortunate that, you know, I'm a simple soldier. Um, I'm the son of a soldier who is the son of a soldier. So some would say this is maybe in my DNA. Um, and I am, you know, my, my father was a sergeant major. Uh, he couldn't figure out why it took me so long to, to, to get promoted to be a, a, a general officer because he told me he made sergeant major in 19 years. And he said, I went to the top of my pay grade structure in 19 years. Jim, you've been at this thing for like 25 and you know, you're just 07. I'm like, hmm, well, dad, I'm trying. Um, but it, it, it is, uh, like I said, I've been very, very lucky. And there's a part, if you talk about the burden of commander, there's a part of um, my philosophy that really comes out in the paratrooper kind of ethos of, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter what, you know, you're uh, the leader of the, the army unit that's jumping is the first one that leaves that jumps out of the plane. Mm-hmm. So it's literally the follow me, you know, in, you know, you're not, unfortunately when you land on that drop zone, you don't have a security detachment standing around you. So you, you, you gotta be willing to, to do everything everybody else is going to do. And that's to me where I draw this back to the burden of the command. To me, the essence of of being able to say I'm putting the mission ahead of um, the welfare of my men because we have to do it. I know I'm going to lose some men, but we have to do this mission, which is just hard. Um, but the only way I can look myself in the mirror, and or at least I could when I was fortunate enough to be doing this, just like jumping out of an airplane first, um, I always felt as long as... I was willing to do what I asked those men to do, then I could sleep 
well at night. My conscious, you know, even though I knew they had a hardship, that maybe some of them wouldn't come back. But as long as I would, and even as a general officer in Kandahar, in Afghanistan, 2011-12, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, myself and even guys like General McChrystal would go out and walk combat patrols with our soldiers. Mm. Um, because we had to be shown, show them that we were willing to take the same risk they were taking. Now, yes, there'll be people who will say that, yeah, but you had a whole bunch of security and you probably made sure everything was safe before you went. Yeah, I'm, I, they need to walk around Afghanistan a little bit because it's not it's not quite that simple. But as long as you as a leader are willing to take do what you ask your men, your your soldiers to do, your you know, your team to do. I think that is the way you bridge that burden of command. Mm. You said so much there, you know, it's, and I've shared this advice on here a few times with, with some past guests, but, you know, I had uh, one of my senior NCOs in the Marines, he, he once, uh, we were having a conversation on leadership and, and he boiled it down to, he said, look, he goes, it's this simple. He said, you have to train your, your men knowing that there's a chance that they could go into battle and die. But the thought of doing so rips your heart out. And that right there just, you know, that, that hit home. I mean, because, you know, we all sign up for that. But but what I like about what you just said there is that walking around and, and being being in touch with your men. You know, and I, I, I agree with you. I think that's one of the things that has separated. I know it separated every great leader that I've worked for, but even every great leader through history and, you know, we're talking about military examples here, but, uh, you know, being a Marine, uh, we, we live, eat, and breathe stories about uh, Chesty Puller. And one of the famous stories about him was doing the same thing that you're talking about. He's walking the perimeter, and he came up on a young soldier who had fallen asleep in his fighting hole. And he woke him up, and, uh, you know, as you could imagine, this young private seeing General Puller standing over him, you know, was was uh, not having a good time right then. I'll just put it that way. But apparently uh, uh, General Polar looks at him and says, son, you're asleep on duty. What's wrong with you? Could you imagine one of your lieutenants had found you? I may have to court-martial you. And then he like jumps in the fighting hole and talks to him for a good hour or so to make sure he's awake and up and running. And, you know, that that story just stuck with that that uh, young private and it became part of of – Marine Corps lore, but it became part of the organizational lore. And I think the thing where I'd like to, you know, kind of tie this back is, you know, I have a lot of, uh, obviously I have a lot of veterans that listen to this show, but I have a lot of civilian C-suite types that listen to this show. And, and it's hard to get them to understand that type of impact that they can have on their people and their organizations just by getting out and, and walking around and being willing to pitch in and, and look out for people's welfare, right? Yep, 100%. Yep. Yeah, I would, I, you know, if I translate the military over to the others, I was lucky enough to be doing some work for a large, um, a large medical center in, uh, in Houston, and they were making some major changes. And uh, I, the, they had an interim president on board, and I, I was, he was a bit of an introvert, but I, Helped him try to get out of his shell a little bit. And I said, Hey, I, I told him, I said, Hey, why don't you at lunch go walk through the cap, you know, one of the cafeterias? They had many. And, and, and you know, you got to eat. So why don't you walk through the cafeteria, pick a table where you don't know anybody and go sit at it. Mm. And then, you know, 
you know, you, he's like, well, what do I say, Jim? And I'm like, no, that's the whole objective. You don't have to say anything. You listen to them. <laughs> and, and then that's going to show them, you know, what kind of a compassionate leader you are. And you're trying to understand more because, you know, you may see some things from the 16th floor, but, you know, how do th- things look from everywhere else in the hospital? So, so go down there and, 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 and there's a bit of humanness that'll show people that you, that you are, you know, and willing to come out of your shell and come talk to people. Um, and I just encourage them to do those things. We, those things are almost second nature to us in the military. Um, but I think the corporate world can learn so much from the same thing. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, the one thing that I want everybody li- listening to focus on there is, is what Jim said is be a part of the group, have a discussion uh, too many people translate this idea of walking the halls as having to to you know take survey and make sure that people are uh, are doing their job and and it shows you know I I was working with one leader one time and, and he looked me straight in the, in the face he says look he goes I've tried he goes every time I walk out on on the floor everybody just clams up and and they they stop joking they stop doing all those things they just become tense. I'm like, well, that should tell you a lot about how they view you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, might want to leave that Grim Reaper costume in the office. Yeah, yeah, and 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 get out there, you know, and 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 I like this the the phrase "catch people doing something right" because human nature really is reflecting on or, or looking at negative more than positive, and there's a lot of value in. I mean, again, being military folks, we know. We have all the ribbons and medals and patches and braids and all these things that are really designed to help you catch people doing things right. Well put. Well put. Yeah. I, I try to tell people all the time. I said, you know, everyone usually comes to work every day to try and do good, not to do, not to screw up. So let you know. And if they do screw up, you know, maybe sometime as a leader, we need to look in the mirror and see if we contributed to that in some way, as opposed to maybe catching them doing something right. Yeah, no, I love it. Well, let me ask you this, because this is a, you said something that reminds me, and this is uh, whenever we're doing training, this seems to be uh, where I ruffle the most feathers. And I even caveat it with that when I say it, I said, you know, this is going to be the most controversial thing I say all day. Teams succeed, but leaders fail. I'm just curious, would you agree with that? And if, if, if so, why? And if not, why? Um, you know, you could take it in a couple of different contexts, but, but, you know, the, the, unfortunately for me, it boils down to this world. The leader is the individual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you may have to have a pretty dramatic effect or input, um, on the team, but it is the team that wins, you know, um, Aristotle said, I mean, you know, what we try to do is make the sum of the parts greater than the whole. And the only way you can do that is to bring the parts together Mm -hmm. and and create, you know, a level of consciousness that allows us to sort of inherently know what each other is going to do. The leader can set the conditions for that. Um, But that, you know, it still has to be done by the team. I love it. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. You know, it's, um, that, that, that's the crux of it right there is, is the leader 
you know, the, the leader always say that the job of the leader is to define what success looks like, then get out of the way and empower the team to achieve and, and a lot of times surpass what you just define success look like, right? Yes, 100%. They've got to, um, because otherwise, I mean, first off, you know, it, you know, every, I do see this sometimes in this corporate world as I try to help folks. It's, you know, I'm, because we're always taught in the military to, you know, train the person that's serving with you to do your job. Mm-hmm. And I have literally looked at people in some places in the corporate world and said, why do I want to do that, Jim? That person will take my job. <laughs> and then we have a bigger problem, obviously, or if that's, if that's the attitude. Yeah. Well, how do you overcome that attitude? Like, like when you get met with that, how, how do you get people past that? Because, I mean, what they have is it's a valid concern, but there's a lot of pitfalls with that type of mentality. So how do you get people past that? It is. I mean, I, it's a, it is a valid concern because it is personal. Um, but I would say that, you know, it, it could be bigger than that individual. The organization could have some, some culture issues that are in there that, because if, if people have the idea that, Hey, I've got to take care of myself, um, um, because it's all competitive and, and, you know, somebody else is going to take my job, you know, they may need to look in, at the mirror. I mean, the company ought to look at their values and say, are we doing the right thing? Sort of like you talked about the manager that went out on the floor and everybody clammed up. Um, because to me, the phrase that resonates the most is it's amazing what can be done if nobody cares who gets the credit. Mm. Um, and that's what we're trying to create. It, it, and that's what at least every time I was out there, I was trying to create. I mean, I, and I've, and I've watched some great leaders that I learned from in those people like Stan McChrystal and J.R. Vines and others that I've lucky enough to serve with, um, sort of follow that same philosophy. But I, I think, um, it is, it is also, I, I used, before I got out of the army, I used to think that, um, the biggest Achilles heel I'd observed in senior leaders, and I got lucky enough to, again to do 35 years, but was people lost their self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I was wondering if that was sort of like a military thing. Um, but now that I've been out, you know, helping corporations and, and teams for the last six years, um, I found it to be very similar in that world. Um, and, and people, who are more concerned about their position, in my view, lack some self-confidence. And, you know, and, you know, luckily I'm, I'm in the, in the, what I do with Stan McChrystal and our, in our team. I mean, this is where we try to help people kind of look in the mirror and do a better self-assessment, um, to be better leaders so that we can create more effective teams that can, you know, go out and operate autonomously. Mm. No, no, I like that. And you, you use a, a term there, uh, lost their self-awareness. Just for the listeners, what what do you mean when you say you run into people who've lost their self-awareness? Um, you know, I, I guess in, in simplistic terms, I, I would say, well, it's, they forgot where they came from, mm. which is a really terrible thing. Um, because, you know, no matter how high we go and how lucky we are to serve, you've got to sort of remember where you came from. And you remember what it's like down there. Um, you can't, you can't want to go back into the orderly room. The orderly, the orderly room for a company is really nice because you got about a hundred people and you know everybody's first name and it's pretty, it's a pretty good place to be. 
Um, I see a lot of generals and a lot of senior leaders that are trying to work their way back into that orderly room, micromanage everybody down there. That's not what I'm referring to. Um, but they've forgotten where they came from. Um, the self-awareness for me um, really surrounds what I believe is one of the single greatest traits a leader needs to have, and that's humility. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I used to be lucky enough to teach uh, a course for the brand new one-star generals that they got promoted after I'd pinned on a couple of stars. And I would always tell them, I'd say, hey, look, I'm going to talk to you about 45 minutes about things I've got to, I got to tell you um, based on, based on the military. But at the end of that 45 minutes, I'm going to give you the absolute single greatest recipe for success. That's going to make you more successful than your wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after the presentation, I said, okay, you all ready? And everybody sort of break it, pick up their pens and look at me. I said, I said, Hey, my best counsel to all of you is say thank you a lot. Mm. None of you got here on your own. None of you are going to get anywhere else on your own. So say thank you. Somebody opens a door for you. It's not because you're a general. Okay. They're, they're, they're open the door um, out of respect. Mm-hmm. And you say thank you um, for everything. And, and don't ever fail to say it because that's the one time people remember it. And they'll start writing you off as some pompous um, I think I probably lost about 40, 50% of the, the, the cohort at that point in time. Mm. But they were like, is that all he's going to tell me to say thank you? Um, but that's how important that self-awareness is. Know where you came from. Well, yes, 100%. I mean, and as, as an enlisted guy, uh, I can tell you right now, General, that that is outstanding advice that, that I wish every officer, not just uh, generals, uh, would, would take to heart. Because, you know, I remember being stationed in uh, on Marine Corps Station Fatima, and uh, while there... Uh, we weren't allowed at that time because the uh, I'm sure you know with with SOFA agreements, status of forces agreements, and all that, you know all the rules are constantly changing. But at the time I was there, uh, I was not allowed to have a vehicle, so I had to walk every day to to the the airfield ops area. It was about a mile, mile and a half from the barracks around the airfield and down. Well, there were uh, there was our squadron CO, and then there was the base CO. And what was very interesting was our squadron CEO had a reputation for no matter what the weather was like, just driving by, right? Our base CEO went out and actually bought a van. And when he was driving around the flight line, he would stop and pick up every Marine that he could and take them to where they were supposed to go. He kind of stood in for the, uh, for the faulty bus system there. And, to the Marine, everybody had an immense amount of respect for, uh, for the base CO, not so much for the squadron CO. <laughs> Comes around and goes around. Right. And, and it was, and it always boggled our minds as, as uh, you know, cause we're a bunch of E3s, E4s. And it was like, how can a full bird Colonel have the humility to stop and pick us up? But, you know, at the time it was a major, it, it, that's beneath them. <laughs> you know, that was the message that was being sent, uh, I should say. Well, and he was going back to what I said earlier, it, it, that, that Colonel was, he cared. Mm. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and and that's, you know, and again, what I love about these conversations is, uh, you know, a lot of people don't believe me when I say, hey, look, the, the military, sure. Okay, yes, there is a place for kind of yelling and screaming and spitting and all that other good stuff that, that they like to show in the movies. But this kind of personal touch kind of stuff really gets lost in the translation. I think if there's one thing that I wish I could get Hollywood to change more than anything, it would be that piece right there. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> good luck with that. I mean, I mean, I do, I do have a lot of people ask questions. Is it really like that, Jim? And I'm like, yeah. you know, the, the fact that you got to ask that question. So, you know, never mind. I just tell them, never mind. The, the, the very first piece of leadership advice that I got, I was, I was still in the schoolhouse, and uh, my mentor uh, at the time was uh, Sergeant Saxton. So Sergeant Saxton, if you're listening. You'd made an impression on on young PFC Brian, but we were uh, we were at a joint training base, and uh, poor soldier. I don't know what he had done, but his NCO was just ripping him. I mean, this was stuff that we were used to because it was what our drill instructors how they treated us in boot camp. But we had been out of boot camp and really hadn't seen uh, what we call fleet Marines. Uh, being treated that way, like like out of the boot camp environment, and, and, and this NCO was just ripping uh, this young soldier up and down. And Sergeant Saxon stopped us, and he says, "Anybody can yell and scream to get things done. A leader doesn't need to. They can just ask." I was like, at the time, it didn't hit me, but probably about two or three years later, like I had this deja vu moment. And I was like, that was a deep moment right there. That was good advice. Absolutely. Yeah. So now, again, you, you've mentioned uh, mentioned working with the McChrystal Group, and you've mentioned uh, General Stanley McChrystal here a couple of times. Um, how is it working with, with General McChrystal? Well, you know, um, anybody out there that knows him, he's a pretty intense individual. And, uh, you know, we don't typically – change an awful lot just because we take our uniform off um he has incredibly high standards but you know yet he is um he's he's very much like what you just said earl um he doesn't need to raise his voice um he can look across the room and i can almost read his intent especially when he raises his glasses up on top of his head that usually means something bad's about to happen mm. um <laughs> we all have those 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 little characteristics that come out when we work for folks um but you know you know, what we try to do is exactly what um, he was able to transform the Joint Special Operations Command into in the middle of the war. Um, because we basically, um, with the most elite forces the nation has, you know, most lavishly resourced and equipped, um, you know, in 2004-05, we were still losing the war um, mm -hmm. in Iraq and against the global terrorism. Um, and yet JSOC never lost a fight. I mean, every mission they went out on, they were successful. Um, and he saw, because he commanded that organization for five years, which nobody else had ever done before. Um, but what he saw was we were just too slow, too risk averse, and we were taking too long to execute. I mean, in other words, a very basic terrorist organization working with nothing but cell phone technology was outpacing us moving faster um and we were over analyzing 
things. And so what he had to figure out a way to do was basically to put, um, give that platoon commander, give that field grade on the objective, the power to make some pretty incredibly important decisions. Because that would allow the decision cycle to move such so much faster. So regardless of this very non-technical but fast-moving cell phone network, we were able to actually not allow the terrorist organizations to morph as quickly as they, they had been in the past. And that's what he created. And it did not happen overnight. It obviously took many years to, to get the organization to create that level of effective change. And after he retired, you know, he created the McChrystal Group. And that's basically, and I didn't join until five years after he had retired. Um, I, I was still in. Um, but that's what we're lucky enough to be able to do. We're able to sort of apply that. And the principles really of what we do are almost exactly what we've just been talking about. Um, it's about empowering people closest to the problem to make the decision. That requires some process. That requires some good guidance, some, some, some rehearsals and some other, you know, technical things that we've got to do. But we found that there is a very, very good correlation to the corporate world from what we try to do. And, um, even though sometimes I'll go meet corporations and leaders and they'll say, but Jim, it was so easy for you in the army because you just told people what they do and they snapped to and did it. And I was like, again, Earl, they've been watching some of those movies you were talking about a bit too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and, and, and you're right. And, you know, to, to give a little bit of Hollywood credit where credit's due. Uh, one of the scenes I used to highlight what you were just talking about there is in the movie, uh, in the movie Lone Survivor. Uh, I think they did a outstanding job of capturing, uh, capturing the reality of, of that situation when uh, there's a scene where they're, they're on the mountainside. Uh, they just got discovered by, uh, the, the goat herders and, uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Instead of just giving the order, which he could have, being the ranking officer on on scene, he listened to uh, the input for the rest of the team of what to do. And they had this long, drawn-out discussion about, okay, if we let them go, this could happen. If we were to tie them up, wolves could get to them. And then the story on uh, on news back home, you know, they, they capture this whole thing, right? And, and they let... He he let the conversation get to a point where he needed to make the decision, and then he made it, and everybody followed suit. And it it throws me back, and I know uh, I know being being a general yourself and working with General McChrystal, uh, history uh, is is a big part of everything that you do. But it, it reminded me all the way back to uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. And it was a very similar situation with King Leonidas when they, they got to uh, the hot gates and they were talking about where to build the fortification wall to kind of uh, put the choke point uh, for the Persians. And, and the movie 300 does a good job of, of uh, capturing a very similar type of discussion because he, he just gathers his captains around and, you know, Hey, where do we build the wall? And, he just steps back and lets the captains uh, discuss amongst themselves for a second. And then listening to all that information, King Leonidas goes over and he picks up a rock and he just sets it down. And then he just starts executing, right? He does it himself, kind of leadership by example. And again, um, 
I, I, I wish more civilian leaders would look at those types of examples and then what we've been talking here are some of the more popular Hollywood examples because listening to your team and valuing their input is probably the quickest way to generate loyalty and buy-in, right? It is. And um, that buy-in is something I can't overemphasize because – I mean, we've all seen the leader who comes back from the bigger, the higher level meeting, um, and comes back to his team or her team and says, Hey, well, this is what we got to do. I told them it was stupid, but the boss said we got to do it. You know, uh, what we try to emphasize is, look, you got to give the order in your name. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't hide behind somebody else's name. That ownership then also means you're accountable and you're bought into the outcome. Um, and because, again, if, if you're willing to blame it, the stupid plan on your boss, then how do you think your team's going to do as soon as you walk out of the room? Yep. They're going to blame it right back on you. So, um, unfortunately, you know, getting to that level where you're empowering people closest to the problem, it's not like going to Staples and buying an easy button. It just, it just doesn't happen that, that way. It requires, you know, repetition. It requires competence. Um, it requires competence and competence. Um, and, you know, I can remember the first few times that General McChrystal tried to do this in Afghanistan and Iraq, even working with teams like the SEALs and Delta and Rangers. Um, you know, when he basically told people, he said, look, if you get on the objective and the order I gave you is not right, give the order I should have given you that should be given. And people are like, whoa, that's like way out of control. I mean, you could be, you know, you're still responsible, General McChrystal. That's a lot of risk for you to take. Um, it is. But that's why you have to train people. That's why you have to, to build that repetition. You have to build that, that, that competence. And then that confidence follows right behind it. Mm. And, and that, so this goes back to, uh, you know, something else that, that my listeners are probably tired of hearing me say right now, but. Leadership is just another relationship, you know, and, and what General McChrystal did there was invest a boatload of trust in that relationship in his team. And, and as you pointed out, that is a, a that is a infinitely scary prospect, especially in corporate America uh, much less, uh, Afghanistan. So how, how are you able to convince C-suite type folks, uh, back home of the necessity of that level of trust and relationship building? Well, you said it already. It is really about relationships. I mean, you have to know your team and your people. Um, so, you know, you're not, I mean, you could have two Two managers in the same position in a, in a, in a business unit, um, but one manager has been in that job for five years, and the other manager has been in that job for five weeks. Your relationship is going to know how wide their lanes are, how how much how much rope you can give them to execute with, um, and that person that's been there for five years, they've probably you know been there, done that, got the T-shirt, seen it. And you have a lot of confidence because you've been working together. That doesn't make the, t the team leader, the manager that's only been there for five weeks bad because that person has got to learn. 
-hmm. But because you have a relationship, you're now invested in trying to to grow that capability with that individual, but not let them fail unless it's unless they're failing forward. Um, and you know, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or fattening, you can you can accept that failure. Um, and uh, so I just I I just think that is the key for us. We even in the corporate world, we stress the relationship piece. We will tell people that you know we have a a bit of an algorithm. It's it's not really an algorithm, but this is what we call it. We say credibility is is critical mm-hmm. for for everybody. For us, the definition of credibility is proven competence plus relationships plus professionalism. Mm-hmm. And the most important one of those is the relationships. Because that you knowing each other is going to absolutely be the glue that kind of holds the team together. You know who you can give a little bit more rope to. You know someone that you have to help a little bit more. And and for most leaders, you know, very, I don't know a single leader that's good at everything they did. So even looking in the mirror, trying to find people who have strengths where you have weaknesses and building them on your team so they can help you. Yeah, no, I I love that. And that reminds me, like everything we've been talking about here for the past few minutes, uh, you know, one of my recommended uh, readings is is General McChrystal's Team of Teams. Um, and, and I love that because not only do we talk about everything that you and I've just talked about, but we he also talks about the, the setup uh, that we were talking about in, in Afghanistan and how he he broke down the the silos and got everybody kind of in the same room, so to speak. It opened up that flow of communication. And there's no easier way to build a relationship than through communication, right? Correct. And, you know, um, some people make a mistake of mistaking communication for talking. Mm-hmm. I, I actually believe 90% of communications is in the hands of the listener. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you may be the senior person in the discussion, um, but hopefully you're, you don't run out of oxygen just blowing hot air because you got to take a pause and you got to ask for feedback because, you know, first off, you try to find out if, if the, if the intent of what you're having the community to talk about is actually catching, is the other person grasping what we're talking about? Um, you know, and I even sit in some C-suite meetings where I just, Listen to the to the senior person in the room. If it's an hour long meeting, they've talked for forty five minutes, and you're and you're like, how do you, how'd that go for you? And they're like, well, that's was, was my meeting. I had to talk for forty five minutes. I said, again, you're you're mistaking communicating for talking and not communicating for creating an outcome. Um, and I think I think we try to help people with that. And that's the gist of what General Crystal talks about in terms of the 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 team of teams book. I mean, he created a daily ops and Intel brief um, where it was 90 minutes a day, every day. And that 90 minutes was there to try and drive 22 and a half hours of autonomous action. And he did that by not talking for 90 minutes, but he probably on a busy day, maybe talked for 10 or 12 minutes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and what you just said there is is extremely powerful, especially right now. Uh, you know, we're still in the midst of this uh, COVID nineteen pandemic, and everywhere you look, 
people are still doing virtual conferences and virtual meetings, and there's a mountain of data that is starting to compile, uh, essentially highlighting what you just said in the kind of bad example of this this kind of death by meeting, and we're getting together for an hour here and an hour there, and they're starting to see a lot of uh, a lot of higher burnout rate because leaders have this this feeling that if they don't keep their thumb on everything, then everything is going to get out of control, and that's not a that's not a good work environment, right? Right. I mean, well, you hit. I mean. Uh this is probably one of the reasons why we're so busy right now, because I mean, I mean, a lot of organizations are in crisis. Um, you know, some of the teams we've worked with crisis would have a very short period of time. You know, I was lucky enough, unlucky or lucky enough, depends on which way you look at it. Be working in Texas, they get a hurricane and they go into the crisis mode. Well, that lasts about a week, two weeks. And, you know, we can all stand on our head for a week or two weeks. Mm-hmm. This COVID thing is no joke. And, and so that's what, you know, we're seeing people get, get pretty tired of it. But yet, um, you know, I would say the people who are probably getting burned out, and this is a generalization, are probably trying to do too much. Um, you know, similar to what you just said, Earl. I mean, if you try to make everything important, then nothing's important. If you try to prioritize everything, then you have no priorities. Um, so you, you've got to literally figure out, discern the routine from the important and get after that, that the important. Yeah. And, and, this is something I'm, uh, and again, I'm glad we kind of uh, went down this road with our conversation here because, you know, I know you and 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 General McChrystal and and uh, a lot of your counterparts over the time. This was something that you all had to deal with kind of before anybody else, right? Uh, you, you had all these different international coalitions that were uh, not everybody was in the same room, and teleconferencing was really just kind of spinning up and. Uh, as you said, you know, you had to share a lot of information in a very short amount of time just from the sheer volume of it. And you had all the different international customs to uh, uh, to deal with. And you had all the different international interests to deal with. And it's not all that unlike what businesses are dealing with right now, going from seeing everybody day to day to now we have a remote workforce. So what are, if you have some... Uh, what are some quick tips uh, to, to help that communication flow as, as people are still adjusting to, to going from in-person to kind of virtual conferencing? Uh, well, I'll try. I mean, the first thing I'd caveat Earl, is, you know, there's no, there's very rarely a one size fits all answer. Um, right. You know, markets are different. Leader team, teams are different. And, you know, every, everything's a little bit changed, but um, you know, I, I would, I would tell you that, that, one of the fallacies, one of the problems I saw with it first was, um, you know, I saw a, a group of folks said, well, we're just working from home. You know, everybody's got a computer, so I don't see what's so hard about this. I'm like, okay, all right, there's your first problem. Um, and where I'm going to go with that as a tip is, um, is there's a lot of work that gets done that's not done over your, we all have computers at work too. Um, not all of us, maybe, but most of us, you can only do so much of it there. You know, I, believe it or not, I think some work gets done in the, in the lunchroom. Some work gets done at the cafeteria, not just, you know, um, rumors and talk like they have in movies and TV shows. I mean, 
that human interaction is important. And so where I'm going to get with is the first tip is, um, so everybody's got a computer. If you're just using that computer and you only meet with your team during, during work, um, and it's only about business, you're probably missing something. Um, you know, we're watching more and more folks put together like virtual happy hours, um, or just one-on-one connections where we're highly recommending to some senior leaders and management that, Hey, look, pick a person, you know, go and have a meeting and, and let's not, let's not make it about what they did at work today and what their productiveness was. Let's make it about their family. Like we would do at a water cooler, like we would do in the lunchroom, but use this medium to try and build that relationship, to try and be human. Mm-hmm. Um, because look, if it's, if I've just got to turn this computer on and see Stan McChrystal's face every day, I'm probably going to get pretty tired of it. And he's going to get pretty tired of me. <laughs> but right. you know, I, what we would, I, you know, we have, we actually in our, on our team, we actually have a mentor and a mentee program. So there are some, some teammates that I mentor, but there are actually some very young, straight out of college kids who actually mentor me. And mm-hmm. I'm, and, you know, and we don't just talk about what we're doing at work. We, you know, we, because they're isolated also. I mean, for some of them, I mean, they just came out of college and now they're trying to figure out how to work in the, you know, adapt to the workforce. But yet, you know, their mom is in Maine and, you know, they're working in maybe, you know, if, it, if it's one of my teams, maybe they're working in Texas. Um, the people they got hired with are working in DC. So how do you get this connection? You, you've got to put as much work in trying to build those relationships outside of work um, as you do doing the work, I think. Mm. I, I would say that's the first one. And the other part the, that I would say, because there's just too many to go through, Earl, the mm. one that I absolutely believe is critical is you got to turn the camera on. Yes. And there's so many people that don't want to turn that camera on because they're still in their PJs. They haven't shaved. They haven't. No, I'm sorry. If you could see me now, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a button-down shirt. I've got a sports jacket on and an American flag on my lapel. And I do it every morning, whether I'm talking to a CEO Fortune 500 group or whether I'm talking to one of my college kids that are on my team that are, that are we're, we're trying to figure out how life's going for them, how their parents are doing, things like that. Mm. Um, but turn that camera on and uh, because you got to make sure that you're connecting. Again, not just communicating. I love that. I love that. And you said something else there. And uh, so the last question will we'll work towards uh, closing out here. So I know you're a busy, uh, busy man. Uh, but you said something there that I really want to backtrack on. I mean, it was all good. But you said that that you have people that are mentoring you. And some of them are straight out of college. And... You've talked about all the experiences you have, the the thirty plus years of of military service, uh, your service with the McChrystal Group, um, and you have the the humility uh, to be able to learn from quote a kid straight out of college, and, and I love that because not a lot of today's leaders have that unfortunately you know the millennial generation and the the following generation have such a bad rap how valuable is it for you to be mentored by those younger generations 
you know, obviously I'm going to, everybody's going to say, well, that's, he's just giving you some BS answer, but no, I mean, it, it is, it is this process of building a relationship, um, the discussion we're having and, and being humble enough to realize that just because I'm old, have gray hair and have been around for a long time, doesn't make my opinion the only opinion. Mm. And, um, and I try to tell even the folks I'm working with in, in, in the commercial and corporate world, I said, you know, who just have, you know, as I would call them cubicle forms of young talent, um, you know, all head down in their cub cubicles doing analytics or data or, you know, data analysis. Um, and they're probably underutilizing a workforce they're paying very, very well. Um, they're probably underutilizing a workforce that has high expectations of, of that, that they were, were raised to, to voice up. That they have opinions that, and they've been educated, you know, let's just be honest. They've been educated about a thousand times better than I was ever educated. Mm. And so if we value that, we have to actually do something to bring that forward. Um, and look, I, that doesn't mean they're going to be the CEO of Crystal Group next week. I understand that, but their perspective is from where they sit and based upon their experiences. It can be hugely beneficial for me to understand that. Um, and for them, it can be beneficial for them to understand how I see it from where I sit. Um, in the end, just like we talked about in the military, somebody's going to give us an order and we're going to execute. But, but especially now, if we can have the discussion, I think we just make our team so much better. I love that. I love that. Well, sir, thank you for, uh, spending some time with us this, uh, 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 on this podcast, I really appreciate the discussion. Uh, before we close out here, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you would like to touch on? No, I just wish everybody the, the, the best. I mean, these are time, hard times in our nation, Earl. And I think um, those of us that can take a pause, think and listen, um, and find a way to move towards a common ground, um, that's what this country needs. And And I just would ask everybody to take a look at that um, somehow because, uh, you know, we are still the greatest nation on earth. And I believe that um, we have an obligation to uh, act with a certain level of decorum that comes with that title. Mm, I love that. That's a great way to, uh, that's a great way to close out there, sir. And uh, just uh, for, for listeners who want to find out more about uh, you and, and what you do, and uh, obviously what the McChrystal Group does, how uh, how would listeners be able to uh, to get a hold of some of that info and maybe get a hold of you? Certainly. Um, well, I mean, first off, you can just go to uh, mccrystalgroup.com, and that'll take you to our webpage, um, and it'll, it'll give you a good idea of everything that we do. Um, and then there's a link to me in the bios for each of the team members, as well as some very impressive other teammates on there. Um and uh, I welcome anybody to take a look at that and send any questions. You can submit a question right on that uh, web page and um, our administrators get that right to me and our, and our whole team. Outstanding. And listeners, as always, I'll have that information uh, contained in the show notes. You can just click on it and get right there. Uh, General Huggins, again, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate what you've uh, spent with us today, and uh, good luck, and stay safe and healthy out there. 
Absolutely. You too, Earl. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank everybody. And, uh, and again, be safe out there. Outstanding. All right. And listeners, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Keep rating, uh, subscribing, sharing the show so all my great guests, like uh, the good general here, uh, get their messages shared wide and far and make a bigger impact on this world. Thank you for playing your role in that process, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.